Welcome to the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. I'm Lucy Hislop, curator of this eclectic programme of year-round events. A gentle Georgian home in Hampshire with 430 acres of woodland, lakes and gardens, Heckfield has always been a place to bring interesting and interested people together. Continuing this legacy, the Assembly calls on curious minds with a focus on looking forward and on our relationship with nature. Each episode features an edited conversation with our guests. As part of our value of Giving a Damn Month, Christian Amanpour, the legendary broadcaster, host of Amanpour and chief international anchor for CNN, talks with Chloe Fox about her illustrious career in journalism, the trouble with fake news and the importance in being truthful, not neutral. Christian. I want to read you a quote of your own, and I'd love to know a little bit more about what you meant. I learned a long time ago that as a journalist, I could not be morally equivalent, nor could I present false factual equivalents. I insist on being truthful, not neutral. Mm. Well, I mean, this is the bind that we're all in right now. Those of us who operate in the fact-based world and who've never been opinion mongers or columnists or guessers of what's going on, but real fact finders. Those of us who've got up along with so many of my colleagues from you know so many different news organizations who actually get up and go to the places where you need to find the stories and be the eyes and ears of people who cannot go there, who don't need or want to go there, especially in these dangerous places. Um, we're, you know, drilled into finding evidence and truth and facts. And so it really bothers me when people talk about fake news. And so I sometimes say, well, fake news, when they say it, it means that it's usually news they don't want to hear. And it's usually a political problem. And worse, obviously, is when it actually gets to the science like climate or other such things, you know, people are denying it and they don't have all, they don't want to, you know, follow the facts. So it, it really hit me. I, I made that statement, I think it was a year or so ago, during a speech at the Committee to Protect Journalists. And it was uh, right in the aftermath of Trump's election. And as he had launched his fight against the press, particularly singling out CNN and say, you are fake news. For us, it's an existential crisis. You know, we, we traffic in truth and facts. And we cannot be told that what we do is fake because then who are we? What do we do? What's the point? And that, I found out later, was his aim because very late, like 18 months after he gave an interview to, to 60 Minutes, he told the correspondent, or the correspondent told us, I wish she had told us earlier, that she had asked Trump about fake news and why he did it. And he said, I do it so that I can demean you and destroy your credibility so that when you all write stuff about me that I don't like, nobody will believe you. That's yeah. why he did it. And I didn't, none of us really understood it then. And that's what this whole business of Trump's is all about. So now that we know that, I feel more comfortable. I mean, that's his strategy, and we're just going to 
carry on telling the truths and reporting the facts and the evidence. But you brought up the, the issue of moral equivalence and, and, and factual equivalence. For me, that was, you saw, I think, uh, a little bit of me in Bosnia there. That was my formative journalistic experience. And I was a young journalist, and it was my first time in the field covering a real war. And it wasn't army facing off against army. It wasn't the first Gulf War, which I also covered. This was civilians being targeted by a, by a, a you know, heavily armed militias and politicians with an agenda. And the agenda was to ethnically cleanse Bosnia. It then became genocide, and it was held to account at the International War Crimes Tribunal in The Hague. But we were watching this, and in real time, every day, I spent the entire war in Bosnia with little ins and outs. But I understood the, the moral imperative when I started getting criticized in the press. Um, people started to say, well, she's taking a side. She's, she's taking a side, you know? Um, and yeah, I was. I was taking the side of the victims, and I was taking a side against the aggressors. Not that I wasn't telling their story, but the facts, the weight of evidence was clear to anybody who wanted to watch. And unfortunately, we were at a time during the 90s where this was you know, roiling all of Europe and causing a huge uh, destabilization. It was the biggest threat to national security and the alliance since World War II. It was the first time since World War II, since the Nazis, that we had, you know, genocide in Europe. You know, I'd grown up hearing never again. And again was happening right in front of our eyes. Yeah. And I was young and I was being tested and I was trying to tell the truth. So when I got criticized for taking sides, I said that Objectivity is our golden rule. But objectivity does not mean a false moral equivalent. It does not mean creating an equivalence between aggressor and victim. It's not an either or. It's not a he said, she said. It is not. We're not megaphones. We're not platforms for people just to talk. We have a critical duty to evaluate critically what's going on. So I, I said, you know, if, you're, if you are neutral in, in great crimes against humanity, uh, you're an accomplice. That's what I said to myself, and then I started to verbalize it. And um, I just kept telling the truth. And I do believe that myself and all the journalists who were there, because they were from the BBC and ITV and French television and German and American and all over the world, the body of work and the body of evidence that we gathered forced, mm. in the end, President uh, Clinton at the time, it was after Srebrenica, but nonetheless, it was one massacre too far. One lie too many that he wasn't going to take from General Mladic and Slobodan Milosevic and all those people who rule that part of the world. And they, um, they came in and they stopped it. They stopped it with a couple of days of bombing of military positions. Almost nobody died in this bombing. It was military positions. And these bullies rushed back, rushed away. And then they came to the negotiating table, and there's been peace ever since. And then. And then they were not able to do in Kosovo what they got away with in Bosnia. Mm. So it was immensely important. Following the facts and the truth and the evidence is immensely important. And that's the single lesson that I learned and that I, I refuse to deviate from. Was there a particular moment in Bosnia? Did you have a St. Paul on the road to Damascus experience? Was there one moment where you thought, I've got to say? Well, that, in, that implies that I had a conversion. I didn't. I, I saw it for what it was when we got there. I had actually interviewed Milosevic before landing in Sarajevo. 
and he was um, a really evil person. He tried to be funny, he tried to joke, he tried to be convivial. I remember him sort of slapping me on the back and actually even offering me whiskey after a particularly hard interview. But it was hard for me because I was, again, I was young, I hadn't got that experience and I was faced with this pure evil and I was trying to get, you know, answers out of him. And I couldn't even take his whiskey. I couldn't even take anything from him. And I knew, I mean, I knew what was going on. It, I wasn't the first journalist there, so I'd seen some of what was going on on television. And, um, and I knew. And, he... and everybody knew. It's not like nobody reported like what I did. Everybody reported exactly what I did. Just nobody wanted to believe it. The world leaders who did not want to intervene, what did they say? Fake news. That's what they said without saying it. Mm. All sides are equally guilty. Ancient ethnic hatreds, none of that was true. Very interesting moment. Uh, a global forum organized by CNN and Bill Clinton is fielding questions and being beyond charming. And, um, and then your face, looking beautiful, I must say, comes onto a huge screen and confronts him. And he didn't lose his temper, but yes, he, he was, lost his temper. He did. Well, he did really <laughs> lose his temper. Can yes, you tell us about that? Clinton has a very short temper. Um, he's great, but he has a short temper. Um, so this was in the middle of all this war. And Clinton was trying to get reelected. And he had a town hall meeting, happened to be at CNN in Atlanta, that was headquarters. So Ted Turner, the founder, was there, the president of CNN, all the sort of all the execs were there in this live forum. And CNN insisted that some of its worldwide journalists who were in the field asked a few questions. So I think there were four of us. Somebody was in Russia. I happened to be in Sarajevo. Somebody was, I don't know, in the Far East. Maybe somebody was in Europe. I'm, I can't really remember. But I certainly was in Sarajevo. And it was like two in the, in the morning. And, um, you know, it was still a lot of bombing, a lot of difficulties. All of you have heard presumably of you know many colleagues who were killed on and, and wounded on Sniper Alley, which was the alley between the television station and the hotel, the road. So it was difficult to get there. And I, I wasn't feeling so well that night and I didn't really want to be there, it was freezing. And I was listening to this, um, to this press conference that he was giving, this, this talk, and he was patting himself on the back for the great job he was doing in Bosnia. And I'm like, Sorry? Excuse me? <laughs> People are dying. This, this city is under siege. Can't get food in. You know, there's bombardments every single day. You know, kids are being sniped to death. Um, you know, what do you mean? So I just, um, I asked him, when it came to me, I was like angry, but I was trying to be normal. And I didn't have a prepared question because that went out of the window after what I heard. And um, so I said, you know, Mr. President, aren't you concerned that all your flip-flops on Bosnia, you know, embolden the aggressors who actually have a plan and you don't seem to have a plan? And won't it embolden people like, you know, Kim Il-sung? Anyway, I went on for about 30 seconds. It was too long. But he said to me, um, there have been no constant flip-flops, madam. That's and he's looking at this big screen <clears throat> and he's live and he's livid and he's furious. And I was really... I was quite scared after that because, um, you know, the President of the United States shouting at you on mm. global television is not a good look. This is way before <laughs> Trump, uh, when everybody seems to shout at everybody. Yeah. Um, 
and so I just did everything I could not to flinch. I could feel myself getting red in the face, but it was such a long distance over the satellite that nobody could see that. And, um, and I just didn't flinch. I just kept looking into the camera and just hoped that they'd cut away pretty soon. And, um, and then he came back after, oh, that poor woman. She's seen such a lot. Ah, oh, no. But it was okay. He was kind afterwards. But and again, it was a formative moment. You know, and then everybody started calling me madam whenever I walked in. <laughs> <laughs> Were you... Um... But you know, again, our job, if you talk to any journalist, our job is to hold power accountable, right? Yeah. If you go back to Woodward and Bernstein, who inspired all of us and all the generations that came after Watergate, yeah. it's to hold power accountable. And to do that, you don't, you're not just sort of frivolous, you don't just ask you know, stupid, like, not, I don't mean stupid, you don't, you're not just snarky, that's not holding people to power account. You really, you know, you try to present them with the evidence that you're gathering and, and ask them to deal with it and to, to talk about it and what are they gonna do about it. And so, you know, little by little by little, I learned on the job, you know, how to, how to be moral and truthful, how to hold power accountable when you could, and so that's been what I've been trying to do. But always, um, obviously it's something you've learned over time, but instinctively one senses with you a, uh, a great um, integrity. You can feel it when you walk into the room and a, and a strength and a self-belief, and I'm interested to know I don't think you can learn that. Is that something that you were born with? Well, look, I mean, we were talking outside. I went to Catholic school, and I'm sure the fear of God was put into me. <laughs> uh, and um, I was brought up, you know, not to lie and not to steal. Once I did steal, I mean, I probably stole more than once, but once I really do remember, when I was about 10, I stole a whole load of poster paints. Do you, does anybody know what that means? Anyway, yeah. they're tiny little paints, beautiful color, all these jewel tones. And I didn't have any paints at home, and there were paints in the closet. Closet. So I thought I'd take them home. And I did. I took about five of them home, all in the most beautiful colors. And I guess I twigged that I shouldn't have done it. And I put them in my little toy cupboard. I, I don't know how old I was, seven, eight, nine, something like that. And I was in Iran. And I knew that I couldn't actually paint with them because then my mother would know and she would know that she hadn't bought me the paints. So I painted the inside of my cupboard over and over again <laughs> with these colors until my mother found out. And she basically put them in a bag and said, you have to go back into the class and give them back. So I went back into the class and gave them back in front of everybody. And I've never forgotten that lesson, so. Wow. Mm -hmm. So she was quite a force, your mum. Your yeah. mum's English. Yeah, my mum's English, my father was, was Iranian. Iranian. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and, um, and she was Catholic. Yep. And presumably instilled in you a sense, or maybe your father did too, a sense that as a woman you could do anything you wanted. Well, actually, again, never, never verbally. It was never sort of a lesson that I was sat down and taught. Or, or talked about. It was just that I saw my mother, who is a very strong woman, but not, you know, she's strong and that she's resolute and she's, you know, keeps herself together and keeps the family together. And she wasn't, uh, you know, professional. She was a, a homemaker and she did a great job bringing us up and having great food on the table and a lovely warm, hospitable house that all our friends wanted to come to. But she also was a young woman, about 19 years younger than my dad, who had traveled, literally driven a car 
full of my grandfather, her father's business colleagues, who wanted to get back to Iran. So when she was 21, she actually drove a whole bunch of people in a new car from England to Iran at 21. Wow. In 1956. And when she told me the story as I was growing up, it, I mean, it's like hair-raising. And they went through Turkey and they're bandits and kidnappers and all this kind of stuff. But they were fine. And then they got to the Iranian border and blah, blah, blah. She went to a party, met my dad, and the rest is history. But it was an adventure. I mean, it was a real adventure, which I guess I must have internalized. Mm. And then my dad, who was considerably older, and he's no longer alive, but my mother is, Muslim, but not a very devout Muslim. And so I, I didn't really have, you know, I, I grew up understanding that, you know, you can be in one house with different religions and different nationalities and... Um, and that served me very, very well in all these conflicts and this tribalism that I've been immersed in throughout my entire career and that continues in politics today. Um, so, yeah, and, and my father never said I couldn't do anything. And my mother obviously never said I couldn't do anything. But you fell into journalism by accident. Sort of by accident. I mean, yes, in that I wanted to, <laughs> yeah, by failure, really. I wanted to be a, a, a doctor. And I didn't actually get the right grades at A-level to go to medical school here in the great United Kingdom. Um, I didn't do well at all in my A-levels. I mean, there are all sorts of reasons for that. And it's not because <laughs> I was thick. <laughs> my lovely mother changed my school from a very, very proficient school in sciences to a school that was in, really proficient in the arts between O-level and A-level. And in those days, you actually didn't ask the teachers or the head the heads, what are you good at? I mean, my daughter wants to do science. Is that your strength? There was no, I mean, I guess you now you can Google it or people ask, you know, what and, and know what the strengths of the particular schools are. Anyway, it was really bad at science and I failed my exams. And uh, I even tried to, anyway, anyway, I did. And I was really depressed. And it was just happened to be at the time of the Iranian revolution. So I went from London back home to sort of hide and hibernate and try to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And, you know, hey, presto, the Islamic revolution happened in Iran. I'm smiling. I shouldn't. It was a <laughs> terrible thing. It was terrible for the country. It was terrible for my family. It was terrible for many people who lost their lives and their livelihoods and their homes. Um, but like so many of the younger generation, I left. And like so many Iranian expatriates now and immigrants around the United States and around Europe who've done so well in tech and in medicine and all these other things, it was it is what formed me. I decided that I needed to go to university and study journalism. So that's what I did. I went to... Um, I went to America and studied journalism. Why journalism? Because I'd watched this thing happen mm. and I'd watched it unfold before my eyes, but I'd also been looking at the news, listening to the radio, looking at the, um, reading the newspapers, and just being fascinated by the way this story was being portrayed. And um, I wanted to tell those stories. I wanted to tell those stories. And you worked your way up. Yeah. And I'm interested to know what your advice would be I mean, as a woman, did you feel any, uh, did you feel that you were fighting a rising tide? 
You mean, was my, was my road blocked as a woman? Did you feel that your road was no. blocked as a woman? No, I didn't. I'm telling you, that I don't know why, maybe I was stupid, but that stupidity played in my favor. Because had I gone in thinking that I was on the back foot or to be defense, not defensive, but you know, you know, feeling like you know, I had no right to be there, who knows? But I felt fully that I had every right to be there. And as long as I was competent and capable and ambitious enough and hardworking enough, um, that I, I could do it. And luckily, I got a job right out of university. I mean, a, a small job at the local television station, but then my big job, well, my first job, big major job, was at CNN, but right at the bottom. So it was a big place, but I got a little job, so to speak. And I um, climbed up from there, and that was great. And that was, that's what I would always advise. Although today, the landscape, the, the labor landscape is completely different. Young people tend to move horizontally, tend to move here and there, don't necessarily. This month, I'm 35 years at CNN. It's very rare these days. It may not happen again in subsequent generations, because that's not what the workforce or the employment landscape looks like these days. There's much more that you can pick and choose. There's much more mobility and um, less, which I regret, but maybe less loyalty to a particular company, you know? Um, and I had a big loyalty to the company that gave me my break, and that I, this was where I climbed the ladder. Presumably, you could have gone anywhere else. I mean, you must well, have had job offers everywhere. I did, I did, but not that many. I mean, I did, but I wasn't really eager, desperate to leave. And the, the year when it was very, very, you know, when all of these, when I did get a lot of job offers, was 1996. And it was after all this Bosnia stuff and all the rest of it. But I did something that was that was really great. I was really, really, really nervous because I knew that I needed to spread my wings. I knew that I'd reached some kind of place where other people were looking at me and I had to make a decision. Do I move or do I stay? I felt loyal and I really wanted to stay, but I also needed another challenge. I wanted to see whether I could do X, Y, or Z. And so I decided to actually work for two networks. And it was, it was groundbreaking, actually. No other television journalist had done that up to, there, up to then. And, um, and I stayed at CNN, and I contributed. I did five or six pieces a year for 60 Minutes um, at, at CBS in America, which, at the time, was, again, the holy grail of, of television. It was like you couldn't get any higher than 60 Minutes. So I was really, really, really... I mean, I felt that I had died and gone to heaven right there because I ended up working for two of the great geniuses of television. One was Ted Turner, mm. who founded CNN, and I wanted to stay because I really adored Ted Turner. I mean, I really, really adore Ted Turner. He has transformed the world and revolutionized the way we look at news yeah. and facts and breaking down barriers for everybody to be able to get their news. The BBC had World Service Radio, but nobody had World Service Television until Ted. Um, and now, of course, everybody does. Um, but he, for many years, was the, was the pioneer and the only one out there. And it was just phenomenal, the way barriers broke down around the world. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, I was able to work for this guy, Don Hewitt, who is practically the creator of television as we know it. He created um, 
this program called 60 Minutes. He created the idea of of what we now call fonts or banners, the words underneath to, to, you know, he created the idea of a magazine show. And he was the first ever uh, to, uh, to produce and create um, televised presidential debates. The first ever oh. televised presidential debate was between John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon. And um, Don Hewitt, created the idea, produced it on television. So he was, just to say, a, a real trailblazer. And for myself, to be able to work for those two people, I mean, you know, it doesn't get much better than that. It's really important who you work for. It's really important who you respect. It's really important who you follow. And um, I was happy to follow those two people. I was a soldier in their trenches. And I loved it. And it's a great privilege to be able to work for people who really inspire you and who really, um, you know, just Im embed that, that sense of loyalty because I think it's getting rarer and rarer. You say that you were a soldier in the trenches and you have inevitably encountered presumably great fear for your own life. And you have friends who've lost their lives in the pursuit mm. of truth. How did you navigate that? Well, you know, it's very scary. Bosnia was the first war where the combatants turned against the journalists deliberately. Mm. Well, one side, the Serbs, basically. They didn't want us to, to talk. Um, they didn't want to hear, they didn't want the world to hear what was really happening. And in previous wars, you know, in my experience, in my lifetime, whether it was Central America, whether it was Beirut, whether I obviously didn't do Vietnam, but all of those wars, journalists were considered useful. They were considered people who could tell the story and get the story out by all sides. And they had access to all sides. And if they were killed, it was tragic, but it was mostly, mostly killed in the crossfire which doesn't lessen the heartbreak and the tragedy, but it lessens the danger, the specific targeted danger. And then we got to uh, Bosnia and all of a sudden, you know, they're sniping at us and they're shelling our hotels. And so, yes, you know, a lot of friends were, were wounded and injured. And then it got worse because, so that was shelling and sniping. And then fast forward to Iraq and Syria and you have, you know, you know, journalists having their throat cut, throats cut. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And yet we still go. We still tell the truth. We still go out and do our duty. So when we hear somebody like Donald Trump mm. talk about fake news in that regard, we get really angry. And we're right to get angry. Because if we don't fight back, then you have this awful reality where there's no truth where really it's the end of truth, where there's nowhere you can look. And I think whether it's the BBC or CNN or the New York Times or the Times or all the great um, established brands, we're more important than ever right now, not just because we're self-important, we're important because of our brands. So that people, when they don't know where to look and where's the truth and what's going on and who should we believe across social media and Twitter and Facebook and all that nonsense, Go to your brands, go to your people, go to the places that you've learned to trust and you know are at least going to be trying to tell you the truth rather than mired in all this, you know, in all this craziness that's going on right now. I've got to, I must read you actually, Meryl Streep, who I know you've interviewed before, has recently written an open letter uh, to Porter magazine 
recently published, but I thought you'd enjoy um, what she's written. Journalists today, investigative journalists, and especially female journalists, are vulnerable and come under a special scrutiny online. online. For all of us who rely on the news but do not gather it, who are too busy to research it ourselves and stake our lives on its veracity, we need these relentless, annoying questioners, these bullshit detectors, excuse my language, these modern-day Cassandras to report to us what they see, what they hear, and which way leads over the cliff so we can swerve to avoid it. Well, she writes really nicely, and she is really quite... Uh, we've we've really benefited from Meryl's uh, support because she um, I, it's all, all in the post Trump age obviously, but she has supported the committee to protect journalists with her time. She's been on the podium. She's given money. She's spoken out many times like this, and so have others. But she's the most prominent in 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 her field, and she as you know just did the post with Tom mm -hmm. Hanks about Ben Bradley and Catherine Graham at the height of the Pentagon Papers which then led to, to Watergate. Um, and so it's wonderful to have that kind of support. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's like, I mean, German, journalism has been going on for many, 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 many years, more than 100 years, more than that. I mean, that's what people do. There's corris foreign correspondents, people who get up, go out, look, write, tell, come back, tell you what is going on. And the notion that this is under threat is actually scary because you know in the last 18 months since since the Trump phenomenon nearly 2 years now you know we've really had to focus on the pillars of civil society and democracy because it's not just truth that's under attack it's the whole concept of liberal democracy right mm. it's democracy that's under attack whether it's by um, extreme group political groups that that don't believe in the rule of law i mean right here in in europe in the democratic world forget the dictatorship world right here in our world there are political parties who are getting very close to power or who are in power who simply don't believe in um, in truth or in rule of law or in the rights of journalists or journalism or an independent and free press. In America, and I don't know how much it's the case here, but in the United States they call the press the fourth estate, mm. which implies or imbues a certain amount of respect and, and civic duty. Sorry, I, meant, I don't mean respect. Responsibility on our part, mm. civic duty, but also if we're a fourth state, it means we're a pillar of our civil society. So, you know, democracy cannot thrive without the truth. It cannot thrive. The difference between democracy and dictatorship is very simple, truth and lies. Truth and lies. So you, how do you view your own position now? You're not on the front line, as it were, anymore, but you're going toe-to-toe. -to -toe on an almost daily basis with people in positions of power. Do you feel that you can be more use doing what you're doing no, now? No, not really. I just had a human reaction. Um, I, uh, I had a child and I didn't want to die and I wanted to be around. And I then moved to the United States where it became much, much more um, difficult to, to be a 
fire person, you know, fireman, firewoman, whatever, the, the word you use for a foreign correspondent who gets up and goes at a moment's notice. It's more difficult. You're, you know, America's still a hermetically sealed environment. You can go, New York is, is okay, but anywhere west of New York, <laughs> and you wouldn't know the rest of the world exists, much less breaking news in, I don't know, Indonesia. Um, so it's psychologically, physically, you know, distance-wise, just more difficult to be, you know, a daily foreign correspondent. Whereas from here, you can get up, go to Heathrow, be there, here, there, and just come back, and it's not too bad. Um, so I just, it just combined with being in the United States and my son being about seven years old at that time and feeling that I should, you know, be much more at home and much more, you know, with him at this time. And I don't regret it one tiny little bit. It was exactly the right thing to do. So what I was able to do, thank you, CNN, was to translate my field work into studio work. And again, that wasn't obvious. I didn't know whether I could do studio work. They didn't know whether I could do studio work. Um, but we did it, you know, and they were ready to, uh, you know, let me, I mean, I didn't actually say I won't go out into the field anymore, but it was just sort of a, but I do, I mean, I do. I do documentaries, do, yeah. I do series. It's true I don't get shot at on a daily basis, but you know what? That's not a bad thing either. At a certain time, you've got to figure <laughs> out, you know, when you're young, you can do it. When you get a little bit older, you just don't. Because, and I absolutely believe this, this is a game of Russian roulette. And you can only play Russian roulette for a certain amount of time. Plus, when you're young, you actually feel immortal. When you're not married, you don't have kids, when you're not looking at the back nine, you feel immortal. So when people say, oh, we're so brave, we're so this, no, we're not. We don't know any better. Just young. You just feel immortal and you, and, you feel that if you die, well, not many people are going to worry. I don't have a kid to worry about. I don't have a partner, etc. So it's just a very different psychological um, state of mind. And, and then I, I can tell you for sure that everything scared me after I had my son. I couldn't even get on a plane without getting scared. I mean, I did it. I walked. You know, I pushed through it. 9-11 happened after mm. Darius was born. I had to be away for quite a long time in Afghanistan and all these other places. Um, you know, I, yeah, the war in Iraq, et cetera, et cetera. But you just get more conscious of the fact that um, you have a certain amount of, 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 of uh, whatever, risks, lives, nine lives. And I didn't want to push it. It becomes more important doesn't it? The more that truth is under attack, it becomes more important that there are voices that we can trust. And I think, I think your voice is a voice that's viewed with great um, trust and respect. And um, when you're in a studio interview with somebody, do you bring the same skill set to what you're doing? Well, here's the thing. Um it's, I think it's much more difficult interviewing than being in the field. It's less physically dangerous and maybe less physically taxing, but it's much more mentally difficult. And I still get nervous interviewing if I have big interviews. Um, yeah, I do. It's, it's like trying to do it. And I have a program every day, and I have to interview fairly big people, as big as I can get anyway, on a daily basis. And you just feel like you're doing a doctoral thesis every day. The amount you read, the amount of research, the amount you have to know. And I mean, 
you kind of have to be almost more prepared than they are because you have to game out the question. So if they tell me this, then I have to bring this out. And if they're this and this, you know, it's not just sort of, it's not five minutes, you know. Now, now my show's expanded to an hour, so I actually have to ask more questions. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, oh, quite sure. But, um, but, but it's, it's exponentially more difficult. So um, I do still get nervous about that. And, but I like to bring, what I say, the field into the studio. So I do feel that my time in the field sort of informs, you know, the kind of questions I ask. Because the one thing I have that they can't fault me on is I've been there. Yeah. You know, I've been there. And so I'm using that. Yeah. And you're just back from America. Yes. How is it over there? Well, talking about being a woman, um, <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. Unbelievable. It's unreal. It's unreal what's going on. I read a little clip in the Financial Times, and I don't think it was today's. It's like two days ago um, that I was catching up on this morning. And there's a little cartoon in the letters section. And it says, when I want to cheer myself up about Donald Trump, I just watch Donald Trump. <laughs> because I don't know whether any of you, I, I have to do watch these entire live things for a living. But I don't know how many of you do. But I would highly advise you to go back and watch the entire one and a half hours, no, 83 minutes to be precise, of his freewheeling, rambling, very, very funny, very clever, in a weird kind of way, um, press conference at the United Nations. Yeah. I'd never seen anything like it in my life. <laughs> it was literally, I thought, I'm just going to start laughing at you. I mean, really. Xi Jinping, he's a really good friend of mine. I mean, he may not be my friend right now because of the trade, but we get on really, really well. You know, I do not want a world with the most dangerous weapons being in the worst, worst hands. I really like Kim, Kim Jong-un. <laughs> Even though he poisoned his own, you know, brother with nerve gas. I don't want the worst, I do not want a nuclear Iran. So I'm going to tear up the nuclear deal that we signed with Iran. Ah, uh, uh, you know, just on and on and on. I mean, he's two state, one state, I don't know, a couple of states, whatever they think. It's up to the Israelis and the Palestinians. I mean, it just goes <laughs> on and on and on. And it is really now quite funny. <laughs> it's quite funny, except it's not, it's serious. He's the leader of the free world. Um, and it's very, very, I think, I think so many journalists have got themselves into such state trying to cover him. And I fully understand it. And when you're in the United States, you feel it a thousand times more than you do when you're here. But I mean, it's like the television is on in every home, in every car, with the television, the telephone, the iPad, the this, whatever the platform is that's giving you noise, that's got Trump noise on it, it's on. And everybody is in some state of massive, coordinated nervous breakdown. They just don't know how to deal with this. And, um, and I do think, Bob Woodward said to me the other, you know, he just wrote the book Fear, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. Trump and the White House. He thinks that journalists are getting over-emotional about Trump, that we're just vesting too much personal angst into this. And, um, and I kind of agree with him. Mm. I think, you know, Responding to every single tweet is both, you know, I mean, drives you mental, but also it's playing his game on his level. 
and allowing him to, to set the agenda, which of course he does because he's the president, but being drawn into that rabbit hole over and over and over again until you cannot get out, instead of trying to focus on what the news is, you know, and try to just, just stick with the news. And so Trump was weirdly silent for quite a, mostly silent, a little bit of tweet here and there about this Kavanaugh thing. Because, you know, I mean, you know, I mean, there's so much that's wrong about this. There's so much that's wrong about it. But in a political sense, P President Trump, if he loses this nomination, will be viewed as somebody who's not as strong as he claims to be and not as ma magic in terms of, you know, pushing his nominees and, and others forward. So that he'll take a little bit of a hit on that, although he'll probably, you know, put somebody even worse on the court. Um, uh, that it's all about women in the midterm elections. He can't afford to go full frontal against women, although he did attack uh, Ford's credibility a little bit. Um, so he's in a bind, Trump, right now. You know, damned if he does, damned if he doesn't on this issue. And it's been actually very interesting to watch that because this year, much like 1992, the election of 92 that brought Clinton to power, that was the year of the women. And there were, I think, something like 32 women entered Congress, which was a huge jump from like seven before that. And it was because of the Anita Hill hearings, mm -hmm. which were, you all know that it was, you know, 1991 when Supreme Court nominee um, Clarence Thomas was being vetted. And then Anita Hill came up and said that he had sexually harassed her, not physically, but in words and, and, and intent and kind of bullying. And um, at that time, it was generally thought amongst a, a significant enough number of voters in the United States that she had been treated very badly, that she was disbelieved, and that she was, I mean, treated incredibly badly by an all-male Senate Judiciary Committee, um, several of whom are still on the Senate Judiciary Committee 27 years later, saying the same dumb things that they said 27 years ago. Um, so this is a real problem. And now, because of Trump, and in the, in the years of, be, between Trump's election and now, there are nearly 500 women running for election in the United States for the midterms. That's a massive record, obviously. It's mm. huge. It's huge. And um, it, it, you may remember that it was women, white women, who essentially put Trump over the top in 2016, which flummoxed women all over the place, yeah. but they did. And, um, and now, uh, you know, women, according to the latest Pew polls, are sort of peeling off. So he has a problem when it comes to women. Um, <laughs> the women who will vote for him, to be precise. Um, he has other problems. But in this political situation, the, you know, it has a consequence. Um, so that's where we are right now. So that's on the politics. And then on the truth and falsehoods of it, and on the, uh, the gender politics of it, Thursday was just a day that will live in, in memory. I mean, mm. I don't know, did everybody watch the full hearings? It was something else, it really was. And uh, I think most people believe, and certainly I think the Insta polls and all the rest of it showed that most people believe that Christine Blasey Ford was credible. And then out comes 
Kavanaugh, who many people thought, it's interesting, I'm going back and listening to podcasts before he came out, and many people thought that he would come out moderately temperate, you know, uh, you know, hear her pain, but say it wasn't him. Much like he did on the Fox News um, interview a couple of days earlier, where he said, all I want is to fair hearing and to clear my name. I bear no ill will to Dr. Ford, etc." Instead, he came out in <laughs> full Trump, because Trump had made it clear to him, apparently, that he did not think he was effective in, in defending himself on the Fox News. Um. And Trump's philosophy, um, and he says this, I mean, this is not made up. He says this, is if you are attacked, you go on the counter-attack a hundred times stronger. And that's what Kavanaugh did. He came out just all guns blazing. And it was not a pretty sight. It was not a pretty sight. And, and many people, not Trump, but many people thought that he had shown a very um, intemperate side of himself. And so people started to ask, uh, uh, is his, you know, put this issue aside, the alleged sexual abuse, assault, and then temperament for a judge on the highest court of the land, not just in his anger and his mood, mm. but his partisanship. He came out and called the Democrats on the committee part of a left-wing smear campaign. Mm. I mean, it, it has never happened in the history of, of, of nominee confirmations. Even Clarence Thomas, who called it a high-tech lynching and all of that, he didn't go full, you know, full Kavanaugh, and he didn't go full partisan. And so this was a, a really, really quite a shocking moment. And then, yesterday, there was an amazing thing talking about the women. Uh, again, you may have seen it on the news, but two younger, younger women confronted Jeff Flake. Senator Flake is a Republican on the committee and somebody who was thought to be a, a, a swing vote. Before the Judiciary Committee was meant to vote yesterday, he, his statement said that, I'm going to vote for Kavanaugh. So everybody went, OK, well, then he, he may get confirmed. Um, but two women confronted him in an elevator saying that they had suffered sexual abuse and that, uh, you know, they never got an answer from their elected officials. And anyway, they went off on him. And sure enough, Jeff Flake walked out of the committee hearing with a Democratic um, colleague and they came back with this thing that they had cooked up, um, which basically was what the Democrats and Christine Ford had asked for and is traditional practice, an FBI investigation. And it's not, this is not unusual because every appointment in the United States, whether it's for the you know, top security jobs, whether it's for State Department jobs, whether it's anyone, they have FBI background checks. And when new information comes in, the FBI then has to see whether it can get any more evidence about it. So that's what's going to happen. And then we'll see what happens. Who would you rather interview, Kavanaugh or Ford? <laughs> uh, Ford and Kavanaugh. <laughs> you have to choose one of them. Ford. <laughs> Ford. No, you know what? <laughs> Let me think about that. It's a good question. Maybe Kavanaugh. I can't put you on the spot and ask what you'd ask him, but I would love to see it. Well, it's really to go to the heart of the matter. Um, but I would actually, to be honest with you, Kavanaugh's just going to say it wasn't me. That's mm. what he says. And maybe he doesn't remember. He was apparently... Lotto. Mm. And it's not just a high school thing. It happened to, apparently, according to his own friends who've come forward now, it happened also in, in college at, at Yale. So it's a pattern of behavior. 
which he may not do anymore, but it was a pattern of behavior. And, um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who say that um, what stays in high school should, what happened in high school mm. should stay. And people are saying, why should a man who's led an exemplary life and has led an exemplary professional life um, be held accountable now at the peak of his career, uh, you know, on the threshold of getting the ultimate prize for any legal scholar, judge, um, for something he did in high school? Well, take aside the fact that sexual abuse is, is a criminal offense. Take, just put that aside. It seems to me that because of where we are today in a social media world, and we all tell our children, you better be careful what you do online because every job app interview, every college interview, all of this is going to, they're going to take that into account. They're going to search your online history, your social media history, and they can see what you've done. So if our kids have to, you know, have mm -hmm. a whole, for the rest of their lives, their history is going to, you know, follow them, why shouldn't Judge Kavanaugh? Absolutely. I know times have changed and people didn't know that at the time, but still. I, I, for me, it just came into my, it just popped into my head. It's mm. just not a defense. No, it's not. And maybe he'll clear his name. Maybe he'll clear his name. But people have to come forward and tell what they know. Truth on trial again. Do you, do you, uh, and we will open up to some questions, but I'm interested to know because the world feels very much as if it's in a state of flux. Do you feel um, a, a hope? You seem to always have, have, have invested a great deal of, of hope in humanity. Do you feel like the world is at a crossroads? For sure it's at a crossroads, but I'm always hopeful. I mean, it is. It is a crossroads that none of us ever thought we'd be at because it's not left and right and center. It's democracy versus autocracy. Mm. And it's happening right in front of our eyes, right in our own country, right across Europe, and of course, places beyond. Um, and of course, across the ocean, um, especially. And not only that, if you, if you, you know, talk to or read or interview the people who are writing all these books, I know the death of democracy or this, that, and the other, you know, they'll quote you all these um, polls and things. I mean, in the United States, a very shocking poll recently showed that a significant majority of young people, young people, said that, you know, they wouldn't mind if a general was president or in charge. I don't mean a retired general, I mean a general, you know? Mm. Um, I don't mean an Eisenhower, I mean, you know, somebody who's actually active duty. And of course it was significantly different um, the older generation who remembers World War II and remembers what everybody fought for and remembers what democracy is all about, um, still clung very, very closely to that, that hope. Um, but look what's happening in Europe, and look, it's the younger people, AFD, uh, Alternative for Deutschland, that fascist neo-Nazi group that's in Parliament for the first time since World War II, and that is really racking up a lot, a lot of, of support right now. Those are young people. Mm. You know, Marine Le Pen, she may be a bit sort of old, but she's not that old, and all her people are young people. All of these, the, the, the party in, in Austria, the parties in, in Hungary, uh, you know, these are young people who, for whatever reason, have decided that they are fed up and disenfranchised 
and they are going to the extremes. Most are going to the far right extreme, some are going to the far left extreme, but most are going to the far right. And that's not a, a pretty alternative, because then, then you have a total full frontal assault on the rule of law, on freedom of, of expression, on freedom of journalism, on all the pillars that make, uh, that make up our, our democracies. And um, the sad thing for me is, and I, I believe this is true, and I may be very unpopular in this room, that a lot of today's elections have been won on a platform and a palette of lies and snake oil. So these politicians who are accurately reading a left-behind group of people, who, for whatever reason, people feel that politics is not working for them, whether it's because of austerity, whether it's for any number of reasons, globalization has failed them. Um, they're not willing to, to look at technology and see where that has played. It's, it's evil politics. Um, so the alternative is not being offered. A real alternative is not being offered. A bunch of snake oil and lies is being, uh, is being offered. And that is going to create double the cynicism and double the disaffection and double the disappointment and double the disenfranchisement and who knows what's going to happen in the next round of elections. Mm. Your role has never been more important. All of our role. It's not just, it definitely can't be one network, one organization. No, 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 it's a massive fight that we're in right now. And unless we, uh, unless we really realize it as a fight for the truth, but the truth underpins everything. Facts underpin everything. Look at our climate. I mean, for decades, we have peddled the falsehood that there is somehow an equal denier and acceptor of man's, human's role in climate change. Because of the factual equivalence, moral equivalence, you know, false neutrality, um, the he said, she said argument, people have been told that there is actually weight to the denier camp. I mean, it's a disaster. The United Nations Secretary General told me just last week that we may be beyond the point of no return. Sorry, just at the point of no return. That's scary. And then you go back and you listen to a podcast I just <laughs> did um, from 50-odd years ago, and you remember that even in a conservative administration in the United States, in the Reagan administration, there was a moment where this could have been turned around. And, you know, the NASA scientist, uh, James Hansen, had it all laid out. And even there was the, there was the um, consensus, the political consensus to figure it out and to work on it across the aisle, Republicans and Democrats. And then you know what happened? Money came into it, the fossil mm -hmm. fuel industry. And they did what the tobacco industry did. They told us that smoking doesn't kill, that people don't affect global warming. And smoking kills individuals. Global warming is going to kill the planet. That's why truth is important and facts are important. That's why people in the United States, after President Trump's election, you know, there was the huge women, women's march, which was amazing, right? It was a million plus. And then, I can't remember how long after, but maybe a month or so after, there was the march for truth and facts and science. There was the science march. Because you could see what was happening. And right now, the EPA, the Environmental Protection Agency, is rolling back 
really major significant, not like little tiny little feel-good, politically correct environmental laws, clean air law, clean water, all of that kind of stuff. Now they're allowing, they've even decided to lower the threshold, or whatever it is, of methane in the air. Let more methane go into the air. <laughs> it's just nuts. It really is nuts. And sometimes I worry that all this listening to Trump Twitter and tweet mm -hmm. and this and that kind of takes us off the, the really important um, big existential issues. So before we open to the floor, one last question. How are we all supposed to navigate ah, our way? I don't know. <laughs> how, I mean, I'm not the oracle. No, but just... Oh, navigate for the truth? Navigate for the oh, truth. Listen to us. <laughs> There's plenty of truth everywhere. Look, oh, look at this. Look at yeah. all these newspapers. There's plenty of truth. It's whether people want to believe that, that that exists. Do you know what I mean? I heard the other day that two-thirds of Americans read their news on social media. Which is a problem. Yes. So That's the problem. Not so much here, but getting that way. Or on Fox News. One, one, <laughs> one thing that was amazing, that even Fox News on Thursday, even Fox News, which is the foot soldier of the Trump administration, and Sean Hannity actually calls Trump every single day. He's put on speakerphone in Oval Office meetings. He's one of the big anchors. Even they had to say that Christine Blasey Ford was credible. Well, that's something. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Thank you yeah, so much. Thank you so much. That was an episode of the Assembly at Heckfield Place podcast. You can find out more about the Assembly by visiting the Heckfield Place website and you can join the conversation on social media by searching for at Heckfield underscore place and the hashtag Heckfield Place. Thanks for listening.